good news and I have bad news. The good news for those of you who, uh, if you're a guest with us, we are working on um, memorizing all of the verses that you just heard read. We are taking six weeks to work through them and we have challenged ourselves to memorize them. The good news, uh, and everyone can thank John Tierney for this because this, this is the day that I don't, that we want to uh, make sure we spend plenty of time with him. Uh, the good news is I've canceled your quiz on Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 10. The bad news is I'm adding verses 11 to 12 for next week. So it's only two more verses. You can do it. I sort of believe in you. <laughs> ah, my goodness. I know some of us have uh, a lot of difficulty. It's always it's encouraging to hear you, to hear people talk about working very hard at doing this. Continue to do it. It is worth it. Uh, it is worth it to do your best to put God's Word into your heart especially in large chunks like this, and so uh, keep at it. Uh, before we launch in, I would just say, uh, remind you that in two weeks, on March 18th, we are going to gather as one large Sunday school class rather than uh, several smaller ones. Uh, I am really excited to think, I'd rather, I, in, in some ways, I'd just like to spill all of the beans now. Now, if you, come to, if you come to Sunday school that day, what I don't want you to come expecting is like the 25-point plan uh, on everything that's going to happen in the future because we don't have said plan. However, I am really excited about the direction that we want to lay out in front of you and about which we want to begin to pray uh, because we believe it honors the Lord. It is nothing novel. It is nothing fancy. It is nothing slick. It is nothing driven by technique. It is a return to something that we must return to. It is a future we must engage in as a congregation. And so I encourage you to be there uh, on March 18th. Now as we come to the Bible, we've, we've worked through several uh, parts of this Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. We come now to verses 7 to 14 to the focus on redemption. We're going to set apart John Tierney as an elder at the end of this service. And the main thrust of the message which John will carry among us is one of a redeemer who not only redeems us from the pit and brings us into the family but redeems us from indwelling sin as we live the Christian life and so it is good that we are thinking about redemption on this day we come We've seen a pattern. It all flows. Everything in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 flows out of that first phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as everything has flowed out of that, we have seen a pattern that everything that we think about this text should flow out of that blessing, that praise, that magnification, that lifting up, that speaking well of God. So that we saw in verse 3, we bless God because He first blessed us. In verse 4, we bless God because He chose us. In verse 5 and 6, we bless God because He has adopted us. And today, as we look at verses 7 to 10, we will see that we bless God because He redeemed us. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So I want us to think about this Redemption. As I've said before, if you take this one text, we could have done the whole text in one sermon, but we're essentially, it's like a, you know how you can take like a cotton ball or cotton candy that's really tightly wound, and you can kind of pick at it and make it bigger and bigger, and you can see the strands more fully as you do that. That's what we're doing. This is a very dense uh, cotton candy. It is sweet. It is a sweet text of the Scripture, and we are pulling at it to expand it so that we can see the sweetness more clearly. So that when we come back to it, you can't see sweetness, but you know what I mean. We can see it more uh, distinctly. So that when we come back to this text in our Bible reading, uh, it will, it will we'll taste it. We'll just taste how sweet it is. And so I want us to think about redemption. That's the next step along the way. And I want us to think about redemption understood, redemption needed, and redemption accomplished. That is essentially the way that we're going to walk forward through this. Okay, first, redemption understood. It's a word that we use often. I mean, we even sang about redemption, but we don't often... Sometimes we use words that we, we don't fully understand. We have kind of a picture of what they mean. Uh, discombobulated. I mean, I have an idea of what that means. I don't know who Bob is or how related I am to him. However, redemption is one of these words that you can use so often. It's like gospel, isn't it? It just is a word that you can use so often, so many times, that you just you stop thinking about what it actually means. And I want us to stop and think about what it actually means. First, by thinking about redemption in the Old Testament. A couple of things that we would point to to get our minds around redemption is first, the great event in the Old Testament, which is a picture of redemption, and that is the Exodus. The Exodus. As you know, the children of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, and uh, God calls Moses to go in and to demand of Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses goes and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh was not accommodating. Not only was he not accommodating, he got really angry. And so he increased the workload and made it harder on the Israelites. So Moses goes back to God and says, um, why did you even send me? And then in the context of answering Moses, God makes this promise. In Exodus 6, I will deliver you, meaning the children of Israel, from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And God keeps that promise with great acts of judgment, with the plagues that come upon the people. God delivers His children. God rescues His people. God saves them. And then Moses sings about it in Exodus 15. And in that song, we, we hear these lyrics. You have led in steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength. It was a redemption by the blood of an unblemished lamb. 
The blood of that lamb protected the people from condemnation. And God redeemed them by that blood out of slavery. And so we have this picture. And then, not only do we have the Exodus, we also have redemption talked about in the law. Now, in the law, in Leviticus 25, from verse 35 to 55, there are these... Uh, there are several statutes about how to handle the poor among the Israelites, okay? The first little section, the first paragraph essentially says, if there are poor among you, take care of them. Take care of them. Don't delegate it. Don't just say it's their own fault. They need to get a job. Take care of them. Give them a job. Bring them onto your land. Let them live right beside you. And then the next little section says, but some people are going to get so poor that they have to sell themselves into slavery. And if somebody sells themselves to you as a fellow Israelite, don't treat them as a slave or as a servant, but more like a hired worker. And then the next section says, some people are going to be so poor and they can't find a place to go, so they're actually going to sell themselves to a foreigner who's living among you. And for those people, you can go and redeem them. You can go and pay a price. And that price was based on a variety of factors. How long they'd been there, what they did, their age, all various things. And you can go and pay a price so that they are set free from being bound to that master. So you have this redemption, this deliverance of coming out of slavery by the blood of the Lamb in the Exodus, and then you have a redemption that would have been very hands-on. I mean, the people would have celebrated that. They celebrated the Exodus in the Passover every year, and yet they also have this very real, very tangible situation in which they can go and themselves, in a sense, be the Redeemer who pays a price to set someone free. So the whole concept of redemption is lodged in the Jew's mind. It is lodged in the story of the Bible. And when you get to the New Testament... We find several words associated with this whole idea of redemption. I'm going to go through them just very quickly. In part, they're fun to say. So the first word is agorazo. Uh, the agora was actually the marketplace. It's a word for marketplace. Agorazo just is essentially means the buying and, and trading of things in the marketplace, but it's a word applied to the Christian. In fact, we just read it before the Lord's Supper. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. That word bought is this word. It's not just about buying pomegranates at the fruit stand. This is about Jesus buying our souls. Another word is Ex agorazo. Now you hear the similarity there? Agorazo. But the prefix ex means out of. It means to buy out of the marketplace so that it doesn't return. 
This is the word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has bought us out of it, never to return to it. Ex agarazzo. So in that sense, we all have exes, don't we? You have an ex, I have an ex. Our ex is the curse of the law. Isn't that great? That's the best ex to have, is the curse of the law. Next word is Lutron. Lutron uh, is not a superhero's name or a villain's name. Uh, the age of Lutron, all right? That's not it. It is a word that means a ransom paid for the life of another. This is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 20 when he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our lives are held captive, and Jesus pays the ransom. The last word is related to Lutron. It's apolutrosis. That apo at the beginning means to separate. So in other words, this ransom is paid not just to keep that one from dying, but to separate them from the prison that they were in, to separate them out. It's like ex agarazzo takes you out of the curse of sin. Apolutrosis takes you away from that which had bound you, which had bound your very life, which had condemned you. And that's the word that's in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have apolutrosis by his blood. We have a ransom payment that has separated us from that which bound us. That's the whole basic idea of redemption is to pay a price in order to buy back. And Paul says that in Christ, that we bless God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in Him we have a payment of a ransom that has separated us from that which would bind us forever. We have redemption. Secondly, this redemption is needed. Now, the idea of slavery, the idea that you and I are slaves, in the American mind, slavery is something you talk about in history class, right? I mean, that's what you talk about. That's part of our, the horrid nature of our history. There are no slaves in America, right? And yet the, the, the Bible says there are slaves in America. Slaves to sin, in fact, Jesus calls the Pharisees slaves, and they can't handle it. They're, they say, well, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin 
is a slave to sin. And in Ephesians 1, we see what it is that had bound us, what, what it is, because we, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. One of the words for sin that means to cross the line. When I was growing up, just outside our neighborhood was a fence. It was an electric fence that was never on. We found that out. It was never on in a scary way. However, it was never on. That fence was between our neighborhood and a field. That field was between our neighborhood and an outlet mall. Uh, that, that outlet mall contained a fudge shop. So my brother and I loved to climb that fence and cross that field to get to that outlet mall to go to the fudge shop anytime we had extra money. Like we were buying like a sixteenth of a pound of fudge. This is how much, you know, money we had to our name. But we would do this as children. And we would go and one day we came and we noticed a new sign had been put up. No trespassing. So it's a little harder to get to the fudge shop. Only harder because we had to climb over the sign to get across the field to get to the outlet mall to get to the fudge shop. And we kept doing this and one day we crossed the fence with the sign and we're halfway across the field and we hear the voice of the devil himself, the, the man who owned the field. Hey, you kids! Get off my property! And you glance over, and here is a man who is larger than life, and whose gun is larger than he is. So this just made it even harder to get to the fudge shop. We had to find the right times of day. We figured out which truck he drove. And when he, that truck was gone, we knew we could cross the fence with the sign and cross the field and get to the outlet mall and go to the fudge shop. Why did we do that? Why didn't that sign stop? Because we wanted what was on the other side of that field more than we wanted to obey that sign. That's why you cross the line. Because you want what's on the other side of that line more than you want to stay within the boundaries. The law of God are good boundaries. They are protective boundaries. They are meant for flourishing types of boundaries. They protect relationships. They protect health. They protect all kinds of things in the Old Testament. And yet, you and I see something on the other side that is so good that I don't care who hangs a sign there, I am crossing that line and I am getting to what I want. And then, do you know what we do? That stupid sign. It is so restrictive. We are bound by our sinful heart to cross that line. 
and to go after what we think is sweet-tasting fudge. But it's actually like the treat that the white witch gives to Edmund in Narnia. Poisons his mind. And we don't just cross it. We don't even just want to cross it. We cannot do otherwise. That's what the Bible teaches us. Romans 8.8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you know what? Some people can really feel this sense of slavery, can't they? Some people really feel it. Those who are in addictive behaviors feel the weight of the slavery on them. Feel the sense of, I cannot get out of this on my own. Wondering how or if they could ever get out of it. And they feel that sense. But most people who are walking around us cannot feel the sense of the slavery that is on them. One of my favorite Christmas movies growing up was A Christmas Carol. It always scared, well, pun intended, scared the dickens out of me. And, but I would watch it every year. And there's this scene, the 1984 version is it. If you want to argue about that, do so elsewhere. This is the law, all right? The 1984 George C. Scott version, he is there. He, Jacob Marley appears to him, right? Appears to him, and he hears the clanking of the chains, and, and Marley comes in and scares him. And at, at some point, and, and, he, and he asks, finally, about this, these, this chain around him. And Marley says, this is the chain that I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. Speaking of the way that he lived his life, chained him. And, he, and, he's, and Marley just looks at him and says, would that you could see the way and see the coil and feel the weight of your own chain. And Scrooge looks and he says, I don't see any chains. And Marley essentially says, you cannot see them in life, but you will see them and feel them in death. Dear friend, you may not see or feel the weight of your sin, but you will. If not in life, then certainly in death. The Bible says it is appointed once for men to die, and then comes judgment. And the chains that may not be seen in death, may not be in life, may not be felt in life, will be seen and felt in death, and their weight will drag you to the pit of hell. You cannot work against their weight. They will drag you downward. We need redemption because all of us are under the weight of the slavery of the heavy chains and the giant locks of our own sin, both by nature and by choice. And the need for redemption is greater still because none of us can redeem ourselves and none of us can redeem another person. Biblically, when it came to redeeming a slave, it was one who was not a slave 
who had to go and pay the price to redeem the slave. And the same is true in the slavery to sin. Only one who is outside slavery to sin can redeem those who are in slavery to sin. And the only human being who has never, never been enslaved to sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. He never sinned, no, 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 no word, no dishonoring word came from his mouth. Sin never touched him, it never stained him, it never shackled his wrists, it never weighed on his shoulders. He was, abso- he was the freest human being that ever lived. And it, was, and it is him, it is him, he is the only one. Who can redeem us? In he's the him in Paul's writing. In him we have redemption through his blood. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus became like us in flesh and blood, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Dear friend, we need redemption. The last thing is to know that redemption has been accomplished. In Him, we have redemption. Present tense. Right now, if you are in Christ, you have redemption. Your chains are gone. You've been set free. Your God, your Savior, has ransomed you. You can sing that with gusto because Jesus paid it all. All to Him. We owe. And the price of our redemption was paid by the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And then Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified as a gift by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus is our sufficient sacrifice. Jesus' blood is our sufficient payment. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's what Christ has done. Our sin demanded the wage of death, eternal death. It is a ransom demanded by God because He is holy. He is infinitely holy. And sin against an infinitely holy God demands infinite consequence. And that ransom demanded by God was paid for by God in Christ. The chains that we forged link by link and yard by yard were hung around His neck on the cross. Our chains dragged Him into the depths of the wrath of God. And it completely satisfied God's demand for a ransom, and we know that because God raised Him from the dead and vindicated Him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Dear friend, if you don't know this Jesus... You may not see your chains. You may not feel your chains. But 
By God's grace, I pray that you are convinced that they are there. If you have crossed the line, they are there. And if by faith you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ, though you were shackled by a heavy burden neath a load of sin and shame, Jesus will redeem you and you will no longer be the same. You will know the lifting of your burden and you will know that the chains that ought to drag you to hell dragged him instead. Dragged him under the wrath of God. Praise the Lord. That is good news. Gray Road, this is actually why we should sing with great enthusiasm and joy. <laughs> how, can, how can we sing? My chains are gone. Blah, blah, blee, blah. I don't really like this song very much. Oh, oh, dear friends. What greater lyric could fill your mouth? This is why our evangelistic efforts are so crucial. Because you and I as believers can somehow be deceived into forgetting the fact that our unbelieving friends and family members are walking around with chains on that will drag them. And that we don't preach the gospel so that we... Look, increased morality will never loosen the chains of sin. Some kind of changing your bad habits into better ones doesn't break the chains of sin. It doesn't keep us from being dragged into hell. Activity in the church is not the key that unlocks the lock on the chains of sin. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. And it is only through believing in Him, only through the gospel of His death and resurrection on our behalf, can the key be turned. That's why we must preach the gospel to one another. That's why we must take the gospel everywhere we go. Because we hold the key of the gospel... And we put it in, and when our Father in the Spirit puts His hand on ours, He turns the key, and that's what unlocks the heart that's sold into slavery. Don't you, want to, don't you want to be part of unlocking the chains on other people's lives? Don't you want to be used by God to see other people in your family and in your neighborhood and in your workplace and the stranger you bump? Don't you want to be part of doing that? Well, we nod our heads now. What did we do this last week? How many times did you seek to bring out the key of the gospel in conversation this last week? It's the only way. This is the ordained way that God saves sinners. This is the ordained way that the chains are broken.
is as you and I take the key of the gospel and in the power of the Spirit we go and in the power of the Spirit puts his hand on ours because we can't turn that lock and he unlocks the heart. It is accomplished by Jesus. It is accomplished by grace. I'm going to hit the accelerator pedal just a little bit. It is accomplished by grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Not just by grace, not just out of the riches of his grace, but according to, which is a word of proportion. I read just this last week, I mean, it may have gone up by now, but Bill Gates, when I read it, was worth about $92.1 billion. And if he sees a beggar on the street and tosses him a $5 bill, he has given to him out of his riches, but not according to. If he gives the man $5 million, he's given according to. See the difference? He doesn't just give out of. He gives according to, and, 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 and we have been given in the forgiveness of sins, uh, we, it is according to His grace, which is lavished, lavished, lavished on us. It means overflowing. Our lives can't even contain the riches of His grace. It just overflows. It's like a teacup trying to hold the ocean. It's like a child's beach toy trying to hold all the sand in the world. It's like your change purse trying to hold all the gold bars of Fort Knox. It ain't never going to happen. But it is lavish. It just piles on to where it just the, the, the ocean drowns that little teacup. And the heart that has been forgiven by God is covered over by the grace of God. He lavished His grace on us. Isn't that great? Sin abounded. Sin abounded so much that it put us in a slavery we could never get out of. And yet, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. There is no chain of sin that the grace of the gospel cannot unlock. And that is not just true for those coming to faith in Christ. That is, come, that is true for us as believers. Because when we choose to sin, when we turn back, you know what we're doing? We're rolling up our sleeves and saying, can you put those on, please? It is voluntary slavery. Because, because we think that what's across the line is so much better. We are deceived when we sin. Deceived into thinking that not pleasing God is better than pleasing God. Some of us deceive ourselves into thinking, well, you know what? God will forgive me. Dear friend, the heart that holds out their arms to the slavery of sin with the presumption that God will forgive me, but I'm going to do this now, is not a heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. Be very careful about saying, I'm just going to do this and God will forgive me later. Because that's His job. 
But if you have done that, if you have held out your arms to voluntary slavery, do you know what's great? The grace of God which He lavished on us in in all wisdom and insight, He can set you free once again from this voluntary, ridiculous slavery that you have put yourselves into thinking it would somehow benefit you. The same gospel of grace that saved you, freed you, and will free you once again, it will train you in freedom. So look to the Redeemer. If you are in the throes of sin and you come here and you hide it from other people and you're hiding it from anyone who could ever see it, the more you hide, the tighter those shackles will be on your wrist. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, He'll take those shackles. And if your friend is doing this, you would have to hate them to say, you know what, that's really their business, it's not mine. We must love one another enough to do everything humanly possible to keep one another from marching back into voluntary slavery. If you see one caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Don't just pray for them. Go after them. And if right now it's looking pretty, I mean, it's looking like this is the best thing I could do is cross the line because I'm not seeing any way out. The only way I'm seeing forward, uh, yeah, it includes sin, but hey, you know, I, I just don't see any other way. Plus, it looks really appealing right now. Do not leave this building before you talk to someone who will keep you from running hard after sin. A Christian friend, a pastor, biblical counselor, someone. The road to a life devoted to honoring God is not walked with the shackles of sin on our wrists. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Redemption has been accomplished by Jesus, by grace, and for eternity. This is where we'll finish, all right? At the end of verse 10, Paul says that It is God's plan to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That word unite is an incredible word that I'm not sure I'd pronounce right, but let me tell you what it means. It means to bring everything under one head again. Not just bring everything under one head. Bring everything under one head again. 
Bring everything under one ruler again. Bring everything under one authority again. You see, in the beginning, God created all things good, and it was good, and it was very good. But sin has corrupted everything. And God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us. We have already talked about that, but but the reality is, is that in the end, His redemption will extend to the very cosmos. So that Romans 8 says, For the creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You hear that redeeming language? Will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In the end, on the last day, all evil... Look, it do, this doesn't mean that every person will be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and every evil angel will be redeemed. What it means is that everything will be under the headship of Jesus, and all that which is evil, all that which has rejected Him, all that which has refused His redemption will be quarantined and punished forever under Him. And all that which has been redeemed, including the creation itself, will rejoice in freedom forever. All things in heaven, all things on earth will be united in Christ, set in order by Christ, under the headship of Christ, subject to Christ, the Redeemer and King of the universe. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. We bless God because He redeemed us. Father, we come before you thankful for the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful for your goodness and grace toward us. Thankful for the blood that was shed for us. Thankful that you included us in your grand scheme of redemption to bring all things once again under your distinct and clear and explicit headship. We long for that day. I pray for those among us who are still in the bonds of sin, who are bound as slaves to sin. I pray, God, that you will open their eyes, that they will see their slavery, and that they will see their Redeemer. And that by your grace they would come to faith in Him, that they would turn to Him, confessing their sin receiving Him as Lord, as Savior. And Father, I pray for those who are believers who right now in their lives, whatever the circumstance, they are deceived into thinking that a sinful path looks the most viable. Rescue us from such thinking. I pray for those who have started down that path of voluntary slavery. Rescue them. Don't let them leave without seeking the help and intervention and accountability and biblical counsel 
and friendship of one who will walk with them. We thank you for redemption. We pray we will live as redeemed people. And we thank you that one day we will be completely and totally set free from the very presence of sin. And we pray in the name of the one who has accomplished it all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.